0: back to the Gospel of John. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading um, chapter 1, verse 19 through 34 together, studying that as we continue in our series. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Down the middle row of seats are at least two Bibles underneath that seat, and you can grab that. Use it as we're worshiping together today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that with you. While you're turning... Uh, many of you know uh, Morgan and Devin Turnbaugh. Uh, Morgan's pregnant. I think she's at least 37, 38 weeks. Um, she thinks uh, her, her water broke last night. She's at the hospital. So uh, Julie Stevens has the, all the girls and her little. I mean, it's, it's wow. <laughs> so be praying. Uh, we haven't heard any news. And so be praying uh, that uh, all the things that are supposed to happen uh, happen well. Uh, you know, we, we, we always have company when we meet here at Hayfield, and uh, in the winter, it's the wrestlers, and there's a national meet going on, and, uh, and so we're fortunate to have uh, one of the families, that actually, the, Steve and the wrestler just just left, but they were worshiping with us, and so that's pretty cool, and his mom is still here back, back in the back, and so I, I really think it's neat, because of all the stuff that goes on at Hayfield, that sometimes we can be a home away from home for, for those that frequent the school, and uh, you know, it's, it's unexpected for them. But it's it's kind of it's becoming kind of normal for us. So welcome. Glad to have you today and hope that you enjoy worshiping with us. All right. John, chapter one, verse 19 to 34. We're going to read these verses out loud together, and I invite you to join me. Here we go. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to be Gathered as your church today, especially since we didn't meet last week, we thank you uh, for uh, this opportunity, even amongst the wintry weather today, to come together. Um, We pray for safe roads and prudent driving as for those who are here. um, As uh, when we conclude today, but as as we assemble today, Lord, we pray that you give us open eyes, uh, open ears, and hearts that are receptive to your word. Lord God, uh, bring these words that John. The Apostle John speaks in regards to John the Baptist and the witness and testimony of his life. God, bring those alive to us today and uh, and make it such that we can see ourselves in John's shoes and our testimony pointing people to Jesus. And we pray this in his great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let's start with this question. Why do people follow Jesus? Have you ever asked that? I mean, how, how does that come about? How does a person who's not following Jesus happen to, at some point, start, start following him? We can get into a lot of theology in terms of the order of salvation, order salutis is what theologians call it, but I don't want to get into that. But I simply ask that question because everyone that comes to faith, everyone that wasn't following Jesus and at some point starts to follow him has a story. And I don't know how your story started, but, but my story was, you know, I grew up around the church, but somehow never could articulate the gospel in a way that I, I didn't hear it in a way that I understood it that would bring me to faith, at least as I was younger in, in, my, in my years. But at some point, um, I met some people who knew Jesus, who just unfolded who he was to me, honestly, I was reading the Book of John just like we're doing today, and so I met some people who knew Jesus, and they told me about him and what I saw in their life impacted me so much, so that I, I you know, at some point I began to believe. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Okay, we got to hear the gospel we got to hear it so that we understand it. Uh, God has to gift us with repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate our heart. I mean, it's a lot that has to, to go on before the lights come on and we actually start trusting in Jesus for our salvation. But really, that, that is the, the gist of it. We start to believe based upon the, uh, the witness and the testimony of a lot of different people. You know, typically a person's conversion into Christianity is, is not instantaneous. It takes a while. I mean, although it might seem that, okay, I just went to church one time and what the pastor said just made sense to me and I just walked the aisle and I prayed a prayer and I became a Christian. You know, a lot of times there's weeks and months and years. I mean, for me, it was it was like going to church as a young kid all the way through my end of high school days Going to college of, of hearing this stuff, but it never coming to. I mean, it never made sense to me until uh, I happened in, in, in the in college. So it it takes a long time. But here's what I found. And I think this is what the text is pointing us to in regards to um, the, the witness of John the Baptist is that followers of Jesus point people to Jesus. Do that followers of Jesus point other people to Jesus. And I think while it's true that people can see Jesus through our lives, the major way that we become followers of Jesus and we begin to understand who Jesus is in such a way that it impacts us to follow him as well is by sharing. It's the witness of our lives. It's our testimony, the words that we would say that would articulate why we believe what we believe about Jesus. And this is exactly what we'll see in regards to John the Baptist's life in our text. Before we get to that, though, I mean, have you ever noticed that at some point down uh, just along the journey of you being a Christian and just doing the things that, that Christians do, it becomes harder and harder to talk about Jesus? You ever I mean, you ever experienced that? I mean, even as a pastor, I told you guys uh uh, it's been a month or so now, maybe a month and a half, I was at the doctor's office getting my physical done. And uh, I had opportunity as I'm waiting for a test to, to, to go go take a test that this older man got in, uh, initiated a conversation with me. And, you know, one of the things that I do as a Christian is as I'm meeting somebody and it looks like the conversation is going somewhere, I always pray sort of under my breath, Lord, uh, let's get to Jesus. Let me get to Jesus. I mean, y'all know what I mean by that? Let's 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 somehow get let's just say his name somehow. Um, and so I'm talking to this man. And we talked about the weather. We talked about fusion. We talked about energy and gas prices and all this stuff. And I, I mean, we never got to Jesus. And I was like, ah, oh, I failed. I didn't get to Jesus. I, I mean, and, and so we had a second encounter and he came back and he had, you know, the question I always had, what do you do? How did you get here? And I, of course, I told him I was a pastor. And that can be good and bad sometimes for this you know for this this man was an elderly man had been living with uh, a, a lady for 30 years not married two dogs no kids I'm just it just amazed me um and even with that even him knowing I was a pastor I could not get the conversation to Jesus and I really really wanted to you know we can talk about all kinds of things but sometimes getting to Pointing people to Jesus, getting the conversation to Jesus can be just immensely hard. And I've got some I've got some some theories as to why that happens. Here's some reasons why people have problems pointing people to Jesus, me included. The first is we forget just how good the good news of Jesus actually is. We forget how good how good the good news is. The longer we are a Christian, the further away we get away from remembering just the, the path that we might have taken in life that's gotten us to however high and mighty your faith might be at that particular time. We forget how broken we were. We forget the, the sins that we were involved in, how Jesus has come, and by the Holy Spirit, he's come and, and cleaned us up and, and really taken us out of uh, maybe sinful lives and, and given us a new start on life. And, you know, even as we read the just the great text of the Gospel of John, we, we see in chapter 2, Jesus turning water into wine, and then a a few uh, chapters later, uh, he walks on water. And then we, you know, maybe you haven't read those verses in a long time, and you're coming upon him, it's like, oh man, I remember this stuff. I mean, this is amazing. We have to be remembered. We have to uh, be reminded because we forget. We forget how good the good news is and how it's changed our lives. The second. Reason why people have problems pointing people to Jesus is—is this? At least I suggest this. We don't know anybody that doesn't know Jesus. This is what I'm talking about. There's there's this phenomenon that happens when you become a Christian, and it's that you 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 leave behind all your Christian friends and you choose to only be around Christian people. Okay, we start going to Christian Bible studies. We try we start going to Christian um, concerts, we listen to Christian music. Um, it's just Christian stuff all around us. And at first, that sounds right. It, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But here's what John will tell us in John 15 He'll say, Be in the world, not of it. And so he ain't trying to snatch you out of the world that you live in, at least not until you die and go to heaven. He wants you to be in it. There's also uh, Jesus also gives us a mission as Christians to find people like like who we were that don't know Jesus and introduce them to him. Third, uh, the third reason uh, we don't know what to say. I don't know what it is about. I mean, we could be talking about anything else. And sometimes if you don't know, you just don't know. But when it comes to spiritual things, especially talking about Jesus, it's like we get this this fear, this trepidation. It's like oh, suppose I don't suppose I'm not able to answer the question they ask me. Um, We were uh, you know, one of my one of my favorite things to do is, is play tennis. Well, one of my favorite, favorite thing to do is read. I just like to read. But my second favorite thing is, is play tennis. We were at a uh I happened upon a, uh, a tennis club last night. I was trying to get Jonathan a new tennis racket. So we went to this club uh, in the Mount Vernon area, and it was just like I was in heaven because I was around like people who loved tennis, and they were indoor courts, and they had tennis rackets, and I mean, Jonathan's getting his first like real racket. It costs too much money. It did. <laughs> real racket, and it's getting strong. It's got tension. I mean, it was just, it's just a beautiful thing. And I, I mean, think about this. Whatever your favorite hobby is, it could be like sewing or skinny, skinny, uh, no don't, skinny dick, whatever. <laughs> Think about this. If, if you're playing trivia with somebody with whatever your favorite thing is and they ask you like this, they, they just like bombard you with all these questions about your, your favorite thing, I mean, most of the questions, you get it right if it's your favorite thing to do. But every once in a while, you might not know something. Like somebody asked me about tennis. They may ask me questions about like, the, latest, the latest tournaments and who's, who, you know, the rankings and all that stuff. And I'm going to know pretty much all of it. But suppose they ask me a question I don't know. What am I going to say? I'm going to say, you know what? I can't believe I didn't know that. But I'm going to go. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to get stuck there. I'm going to move on to what all the other things I do know. Why don't we do that with Jesus? You just, why don't we just say, you know what? I should know that Bible verse. I should know the answer to that, but I don't. But this is what I do know. Once I was blind, now I see Jesus is the man. He's the real deal. Uh, Fourth reason that I would suggest to you. We don't want to be like other Christians. We don't want to be like them people. This is this is telling because this is suggesting that there are categories of, of Christians. That that us Christians divide ourselves based upon how conservative or, or liberal we are, uh, of those that think you can drink, can't drink, um, you know, all those different ways that we divide ourselves as Christians. Oh, they worship like this; they don't have um, musical instruments in their church. We do. They raise their hands. I wouldn't think of doing that. All those different ways that we divide ourselves as Christians, and so we say, "Yeah, I'm a Christian, but not, but not like that." Fifthly, and this is the last one I have for you, we don't think they'll start. Well, we don't think other people will start following Jesus, and so we don't make the effort. And here's, here's what I'm talking about here. You know, a lot of times we know people that we've been praying for for years, years and years, and we see no change whatsoever. We don't even see them inching toward, you know, toward the the God that that we love. And so we might go to Bible study, and uh, the the person leading the Bible study might say, "Well, what? I mean." Anybody got a prayer request and that person's name comes up and you just, and, and you just like second guess yourself. It's like I've been praying for Jimmy John for like years. I'm thinking about food. Jimmy John's. <laughs> OK, so I'm, I've been praying for Jimmy John for years. I mean, it doesn't even make sense for me to bring his name up in, in in community group because nothing's happened. And so the unfortunate thing is, is we lose we lose hope. I think despite some of these reasons. The truth is followers of Jesus point people to Jesus. Now, for those of you who are just joining us, we are in the midst of a series in the Gospel of John. We're taking a look at uh, all that John would articulate in regards to his experience, his his firsthand experience of who Jesus was. And John has one purpose in this letter. He wants us to believe. And so John um, shows us all these encounters of various people, many like you and I, who are walking in this direction in life, and then they have an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus changes their whole life. He changes their whole perspective. And many of the ways that he does that is by showing us all these signs and miracles. And so in today's text, he's progressing this argument. Now, we just spent two weeks looking at the introduction, the prologue, the first 18 verses. And in the prologue, John just lays out very beautifully, this is who God is. Jesus is God. And so today what he does is he takes that one step further. He says, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is God, this is what it means to follow him. And so he'll lay that out, uh, firstly, starting with the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. And so let's read verse 19 through 23 again. You don't have to read with me. I'll read this uh, out loud. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, Nope. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. And so the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they they resided in Jerusalem and and there's such a ruckus amongst the Jewish community about about this man John the Baptist who's 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 operating his ministry on the outskirts of the city that they send some some representatives to find out what's going on i mean literally thousands of Jewish people would have been leaving Jerusalem going out to wherever John was in the wilderness to figure out i mean who this man was and so Everything, every caricature that you've seen of John, maybe in some videos or a movie, a picture. I mean, John is if you understand the psychology of in group, out group, John was like beyond out group. It would be it would be fair to say John was kind of weird. Seriously, that's the picture the Bible paints of him. And we're supposed to get that picture of him because that's who he was. That's who God made him. He was to attract attract people to him so that he could point them to Jesus. And that really is all that John is doing. John the Baptist is doing throughout this this passage. So John is on the outskirts of the religious community and he's drawing all these kind of people to him because he's kind of he's out there. He's a little weird, but his weirdness is not a bad thing. Because what does it do? It gets the religious leaders to come to send people. They didn't come themselves. They eventually do. But they send people to figure out. All right. So let's figure out who this man really is, because from what we see, it looks like he might be the man. He might be the Messiah. And so that's one of the first questions they ask him. In verse 19, they say, I mean, who are you? And the implication here, although we don't see it in the words, is they wanted to know if he was the Christ, if he was the Messiah, and this is a very important question because all the Jews in the first century would have been waiting on—I mean, this gladiator kind of figure that was going to come and relieve them from the oppression and persecution of of the Romans, set up the uh, a newborn uh, Israelite nation and and you know live and exist until the glory of God came. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. And from what they heard from a distance, everything about John seemed to be pointing to that. But guess what John says? He's like, no, don't even, don't even approach that. I'm not the Messiah. And so they, they next, act, next, uh, next ask him in verse 21, I mean, are you Elijah? And this is an appropriate question because John, everything about John, from the message, the message that he gave, I mean, the, uh, his, his message of uh, repent and get baptized, the way he looked said that he was a reborn Elijah. In in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Mark says that John the Baptist came wearing clothes made of camel's hair, and he had, ladies, he had an accessory. He had a belt around his waist. And these are the same words that we read about Elijah in in the book, the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. Um, more than that, uh, Second Kings uh, says that Elijah, I mean, Elijah, Eli- he never died. He was taken up into heaven and we don't know what happened to him. God just took him. And that, that's only happened to a few people. And later on in the Old Testament, in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, verse five, we're told that Elijah will come, he'll return before the Messiah comes. And so they're thinking. This is a, this is prophecy come true. Elijah is here in our, If he's not the Christ, he's got to at least be Elijah. What's John the Baptist say? No, I'm not him either. And so the next question: Then are you the prophet? And what they're doing here? I mean, they're they're unfolding. They're just like turning the pages on their Old Testament. They're looking at all the prophecies that have ever been prophesied about. Everything leading up to the Messiah coming, and John the Baptist is looking like he's fulfilling all these. And in this particular question, "Are you the prophet?" They're referring back to Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, where Moses said, "God will raise up another prophet like himself." And so John the Baptist, he, he answers to all these. Nope, I'm, I'm not any of these. I'm, I'm simply a voice. I'm one that's come to prepare the way. And I think you know the takeaway from the takeaway from John's testimony here is that his witness and his testimony wasn't to himself. John's message was consistent. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not even the prophet that you think I am. I am one sent by God to give a message that will point you the way. What way is that? I want to point you to Jesus because he's coming. John had a consistent message and he pointed people to Jesus. And and this is, I think, the, the personal takeaway for all of us. Think about John the Baptist's life in regards to attracting people to himself and and you attract people to yourself as well. In your circle of friends, from where you live, your intimate family, those you work with, those that you recreate with, you have people around you that know Jesus and people that don't know Jesus. And interestingly, in John's circle of, of friends and acquaintances and all those that wanted to just peeking in, trying to see who this crazy guy was, um the, the thing that was uh, pressing for John is they, they came and asked him questions. They asked him questions. Really, uh, they wanted to know if he was Jesus, the, the Messiah. Do you have anybody? Do you have is there anything about your life that people would when they have a pressing question about the Messiah, about Jesus? Would they actually come? Would they come to you at all? Is there anything about you? That would bring people To you, that would attract people to you, such that it could ask you a question. Is there anything in your life that would cause people to ask you about Jesus? Think about that. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophets? And John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal. I'm not worthy to untie. These things, John, took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so after John denies that he's he, see, I'm not anybody special. Uh, the religious leaders, they have one more question to ask him because they I mean, they're convinced that he's somebody because all these people are attracted to him. But he keeps denying. He's, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not even a prophet. Then what in the world are you? And and why are you baptizing? And this is the significance of that. John was doing something that wasn't done in this time. And if you're a Gentile and you're, trying to, you're looking in and you want to become a Jew, then the thing that you did to become a Jew, you couldn't just go to the synagogue and start worshiping as a Jew. It's not like a church today. You had to, you had to go through a conversion experience. And the most important thing of that conversion experience was a ceremonial ritual. And so if you were non-Jewish wanting to become Jew, You had to you had to get baptized. But it wasn't baptism like John was doing. John was inviting people to the Jordan River and he was immersing them in water, symbolic of being cleansed from from their sins and just living a repentant life in view of the coming Messiah. And so they're looking at at John the Baptist and saying, there's nothing in the, in the Old Testament that tells us that you're supposed you don't have authority to do this, John. So why are you taking people and and baptizing them for repentance? Now, if you were a Jew. Then this would have been ludicrous because the Jews believed they were covenant people. And so as a Jewish person, you were circumcised if you were a boy as a as an eight day old um, human being. And that made you a part of the covenant community. You were you were in the in group. There was nothing that anybody could do to to remove you from being a part of God's covenant family. And so, to have a Jew to demand for John the Baptist demand that Jews come to the Jordan and actually get baptized, go through a ceremonial cleansing, uh, was it, it was it was unheard of. And so, the religious leaders are saying, "What what authority do you have to come tell a Jew?" or even a Gentile to come and to cleanse themselves when we're already a part of God's family. Well, here's what here's what John is saying. He, John, of course, is pointing all these people to Jesus. And he's it's as if John is saying the Messiah is coming. He's telling it to his own people. The Messiah is coming. And it's as if you are. You might be clean on the outside, but your insides are not ready to receive him. And so to receive him rightly, you got to get right. And this, your rightness means that you need to repent of your sin. And so we're going to symbolically cleanse you by baptizing you in the Jordan River. That's what John was doing. You know, this paves the way for what we would believe about baptism today. What is baptism for us? It's called a an ordinance or a, a sacrament, and sacrament is a sign and a symbol that points to something greater than itself. In this case, baptism points to the good news of a God that would come and die for us that we might have life. Baptism points to you being cleansed on the inside so that you live outwardly uh, a life um, directed toward Jesus. And so, Baptism is what you do after you become a Christian. It's the it's really the next step. A person um, say I, I came to faith as a as a young man, and it's me learning, uh, just reading the gospel, understanding I'm a sinner, that uh, I can't dig myself out of uh, the sins that I've committed, and I need a savior. I need to be rescued, and I understand that God has sent. His son Jesus, to be that rescuer, to come and to live a perfect life on earth because I can't live perfectly. And to, uh, in his, in accordance with his plan, to die on a cross in my place for my sin. And so this is the picture of baptism. It's a person that is, uh, Romans 6 says that you're being immersed in water, signifying dying with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. And then you're being raised out of the water to newness of life. It's, uh, it's uh, a sign of what's taking place on the inside of you such that you would live it out expressed on your outside. Baptism is just a symbol. It's a symbol of the gospel. Obviously, baptism doesn't save you. We see the thief on the cross that Jesus says, you'll today, you'll be with me in paradise. But baptism is something that we should do. So if you're uh, a new Christian here, if you're yet to become a Christian, when you start following Jesus, one of the things that we would encourage you to do is to get baptized, is to um, is to symbolize you following Jesus by doing what Jesus says to do. Verse 29. Verse 29. said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John's baptism provides one of the most significant titles that we have for Jesus in in all of the Bible, and that's the, the title Lamb of God. Lamb of God. And there are, I mean, this is conjuring up of course, images from the Old Testament, three in particular. The first of this, uh, the first image uh, that I can think of is in Genesis 22, when the patriarch Abraham is told to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his, his only son. Of course, Abraham, uh, God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12 and tasked Abraham, uh, pick up your family, go to a far off country that I'm going to show you. And there I'm going to bless you to be a blessing and through you all the nations will we will, will be blessed now as the story unfolds the problem with abraham is his, his wife was barren she couldn't have any kids and so they try to do some things they get they get ahead of god uh sarah his wife gives her uh her servant to abraham he has he has an ishmael he has a a, a boy um that's not the promised child but eventually she does um, have a child and his name is Isaac. So Isaac grows up. He's the he's the he's the promise. He's the one that he's the child born in an impossible situation. And so God comes to Abraham in Genesis 22 and says, Abraham, um, I got a test for you. I want you to go travel with your servants, take your son and go to Mount Moriah. And I want you to sacrifice your son. Think about that. I mean, it'll be like a what? Abraham obeys. He gets his servants. He gets his son. He travels, however many days it was, to go to Mount Moriah. They get to the spot where he's supposed to go. He has a servant's wait there. He takes his son. He takes wood goes to a spot, builds an altar. And Isaac, his son, asks this very important question uh, because he knows that he's going to worship and sacrifice with his dad. He looks up at Abraham and says, "Um, who's going to provide the, the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at Isaac and says, God will provide the lamb for himself. God himself will provide the lamb. And so at that moment, Abraham, he continues to set up the altar. He has his son Isaac lay on that altar. He gets a knife. He's in the process of of committing the sacrifice of his son in obedience to God. And at the moment of striking, he hears this, I mean, an angel calls out of nowhere, Abraham, don't do it. God has provided the lamb. So in a thicket, God provides a lamb. This is an interesting story. This, I mean, I, you know, with, with, with boys of my own, I'm almost about to cry. I couldn't think of doing that. I mean, uh, obedience to that level. Thank God for people like Abraham. But here's the message in this for us. Isaac's, Isaac's question to his dad, um, Abraham, was the question that the Israelites had all all through the Old Testament. Who's going to provide the sacrifice? Who's going to provide a true sacrifice for us so that we don't have to keep slaughtering all these animals? Because for hundreds of years, animal after animal, day after day, the Israelites are slaughtering bulls and goats and, and, and sheep because none of them can take away the sin their sins. They have to constantly be atoned for. And then... Really, the, the, the answer that Abraham had is prophetic because he says God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Who, who's the lamb? He's talking about Jesus. Did Abraham see that? We don't know if he saw Jesus, the figure Jesus. But Abraham had faith to know God's going to end this perpetual sacrifice sacrifices of, of animals because that's, that'll, that'll never do. That'll never suffice the, the wrath of God. God is going to provide a true Real deal sacrifice that will be perfect and that will propitiate our our sin, that will appease the wrath of God. The second image is in Exodus 12, and so um, the Egyptians, uh, the uh, the the Israelites are in slavery in in Egypt. There's like millions of them, and God has used a man named Moses to 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 bring some plagues, ten of them, in fact, to. Uh, to convince uh, the the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, to release the the nation so they could go go and and worship God. And so um, Pharaoh doesn't buy it. He he denies them leaving and going and worshiping all this time. And um, the last plague is that God is going to kill the firstborn son of everyone in all of Egypt, to include the Egyptians. He only gives a way out to the nation of Israel. He says, take a young lamb slaughter it take its blood spread it over the the doorposts of your homes we call this the jews called this the passover and so the death angel came through that night and all those homes that um that did not have blood egyptian and israelite on the doorpost of their homes their firstborn son died and all those that had the blood of the lamb smeared on their door that son survived and so in Exodus 12, uh, by, by by reflecting on Exodus 12, this Lamb of God, uh, John here is calling Jesus the Lamb of God. It's it's his way of of saying that Jesus' blood causes God's wrath to pass over all those who trust in Him. The last image that I think uh, just gives us a, a beautiful picture of of Lamb of God and how it uh, how how John is unpacking this for us. In the New Testament, is uh, is from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says in uh, Isaiah fifty three, six, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And of course, this this foresees Jesus, our Savior, who will I mean who will suffer a great sacrifice for our sin. Jesus comes and makes atonement for for our sin by his death. On the cross, and of course, we learn all about the atonement in Leviticus chapter uh, chapter sixteen. I, I can't unla- uh, unfold it like I, I want to for you, but this is what atonement was in the Old Testament. It was one day, one day of the year. God took the, the chief priest, and he had him dress up. He had him cleanse himself, put on a special garment, and then he went and sacrificed bulls so that his his own sin would be atoned for. He he used the blood. He would spray it on the, the articles in the, the holy place inside the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt, and inside the most holy place where God, the Ark of the Covenant and God's spirit rested. And then he would take two goats and he would do the same thing with one of the goats. And he would, uh, would basically um, appease the wrath of God for the sins of all the Israelite people. But then he'd have one goat called a scapegoat. That's where we get that term, scapegoat, the one that gets to go free. And the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat, and he would confess all the sins of the Israelite people. Think about that. All the sins of all of us in this room, the ones you're thinking about even right now. Confess those over that that animal, that goat, and then they'd allow that goat to go free out into the wilderness. That was the scapegoat. And so who's, who's the scapegoat today? It's us. Jesus dies in our place on the cross. His blood spilled the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world while we're the scapegoat for those of us who believe in jesus this is an important point you know all of these all of these are symbolically pointing to jesus jesus the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so often i mean i, I meet a lot of people who have a hard time believing that their sins can be re- can can really be taken away from i mean i Perhaps you're one of those people. You have a hard time believing that anybody, that anyone, even God, can take away your sins. Well, here's a testimony of Scripture. The Old Testament says, God forgives and remembers our sins no more, Isaiah 43, 25. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Psalm 103, 12. God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so the Old Testament testimony is... God doesn't he doesn't take our sin away. He doesn't remove the consequences of our sin, but am an omniscient God who, as one of his attributes, he can't not remember. He chooses to not remember your sin. And it's not because you're lovely or you do things right or because you're just the best person in the world. He does it. He chooses to not remember your sin when you're covered by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you trust in Jesus, God has remembered your, he's not remembered your sin as far as the east is from the west. And as as last time I checked, I don't know a lot about science. The east and from, I mean, it's just, they're infinitely apart from each other. There's some of you that would say this phrase, you know what? I believe that God can forgive, but I just can't forgive myself. I mean, you ever said that? I've said it, but um, it sounds good, but it's not scriptural. So stop saying that. Seriously, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to forgive yourself as as much as you want to. You don't have to forgive yourself because the God of the universe says Jesus said I did. Jesus has forgiven you. The other thing is, if you really know, um, if you really know how good a forgiveness God gives you, you wouldn't want to even forgive yourself. The last thing I would tell you is if you're trying, if you're waiting for you to, you know, to be good enough to forgive yourself, you're trying to be God. If God says that he's forgiven you through Jesus and you trusting in him, be forgiven. Move on. Verse 32. I want to I want to highlight just two more verses here and then we'll be done. Verse 32 and 33. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I did. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the important things that we're going to learn throughout John is his emphasis on the Holy Spirit and, and, and how he works in our life. And you know, the Holy Spirit is a huge mystery to many of us. Half of you in the room are afraid of the Holy Spirit um, that he'll make you do something that you, you don't want to do. Let me just um, set you at ease. The Holy Spirit is not going to give you anything or make you do anything you don't want to do. Ain't going to happen. Um, there's others of you, though, that think you can direct how the Holy Spirit manifests in your life. If I fast, if I pray real hard, if I squeeze my eyes and get an ugly face, then I'm going to get whatever the, I'm gonna get what I want from the Holy Spirit. I would tell you that's an untruth as well. There's a medium ground. I mean, who what is the Holy Spirit? I I actually say, who is the Holy Spirit? As much as Jesus is God and John has proved that to us, the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. And so the moment you begin following Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 says Jesus got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came like a dove descended on him, and there was, a, there was a whole bunch going on there that we aren't going to talk about quite yet, but that was Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit so that he could go out and minister the way that we see him ministering in the, in the Gospels. John said the Spirit descended on him in that moment. That's how that, This is a unique thing. That's how John knew who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, because God had told him, when you see the Holy Spirit coming, descending on somebody, that's the man. He's the, whole, he is, he's the Messiah. Follow him. The Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit is not something you earn later as a spiritual badge. You can't put the Holy Spirit on like and puff your chest up. I got the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, it's, it's not meant to do that. Don't do that. It's not something that happens progressively, progressively to aid your sanctification. You don't pray to get more of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me qualify that. Can you experience more of the Holy Spirit in your life? Can he manifest in different ways in your life as you mature, as you cultivate uh, a relationship with the Holy Spirit, as you would another person? Absolutely. What do we call that? We call that a spiritual gift. Find that in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 5. There's a difference between that and cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. He indwells us, he leads us, he purifies us. John will later call him the counselor. He inspires us. He reveals things to us. He gives us wisdom. He gives words to us in moments when we don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit guides us. He brings things to mind in moments of temptation or trial. He points us away from sin. He points us to Jesus. When you're talking to someone, this is what I love about the Holy Spirit. When you're talking to someone and you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit can just drop things in your mind that you don't know what to say, but that you say. I pray that every week. Lord, I only got a few words. But you got a whole bunch. And so get even if I don't say it, do something in the air by the Holy Spirit and make it so that the people get what they need from you. And pray, I pray prayerfully hope he's doing that even now. This is these are just some of the things the Holy Spirit does. And and so if you don't see the Spirit working in your life, that may be a sign that you don't you don't have him. That may be a sign that you don't have Jesus the way you're supposed to have Jesus, that you're not following him. If there's not an internal witness of God, the Holy Spirit, in your life, and you got to check out what you believe and how you believe and how it's coming about in your life. When you get when you become a Christian, you get all the Holy Spirit that you're supposed to get. Now, we believe a lot of different things about the Holy Spirit in this room. I'm OK with that. But from what I read in the Bible, you get all the Holy Spirit that you're supposed to get to live a fruitful life to the glory of of God. Sometimes we look at other people and say, man, he's got way more Holy Spirit than I got. And I would tell you, it, the Holy Spirit may be manifesting in that person's life in ways that it's not manifesting in yours because they've cultivated a relationship with the Holy Spirit that you have not yet done. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean they've, they have more Holy Spirit. You got the same amount of Holy Spirit. You just need to cultivate that relationship. But here's the amazing thing. In John's prologue, when he says the Holy Spirit descended on him, this is Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit, and this is a this is for us to know. Jesus, in his humanity, needed the Holy Spirit. He needed the Holy Spirit to know what he knew. He needed the Holy Spirit to do what he did as he um, as he performed ministry for those three and a half years on the earth. And that means you and I need the Holy Spirit too. And John's going to help us see that. Do you see the Holy Spirit moving in your life? That means you got to. I mean, you got to cultivate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Let me conclude with this. Maybe you're here today and you say, I follow Jesus, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to point anybody to Jesus because I'm just, I'm, I'm figuring out who he is myself. And this is what I would say to you. Um, scripture encourages you to, that throughout your whole life, both how you live, the things that you do, but also the words that you say that you're supposed to be like John the Baptist, a testimony a witness, attracting people, not to yourself, but to, to Jesus. And, you know, we we talk about things we love. If you're a parent with kids, you talk about those kids. If you are on Facebook, you talk about stuff you like. Y'all, There's a conversation going on Facebook all the time, even right now. And if Jesus is something that you say you love, then talk about him. Talk about him in the way that you live your life without words, but talk about him also in the way that you, that, you, that you use words. The gospel is good news. It's the best news that we could ever spread. And if, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, then John presents this beautiful picture of Jesus as a lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps today is the day that you would receive the one who would want to take your sins away. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For those who are gathered today, even amidst the weather, I I pray that um, by your spirit, you've said something to encourage their hearts and help them follow you more. We pray for those who are struggling in their faith today, the God that you would reveal um, Jesus and him crucified in such a way that they they would uh, hear. Come to a sense of and embrace the gospel for themselves, that a God loves them. So much so that he would lay down his life, cause his blood to be spilt, that they might be forgiven, shown the love of God and cause to live uh, a more abundant life. Lord, would you make us people who are courageous enough that despite what we know, even despite having, you know, an imperfect life, that we would be people who. Both through how we live and how we speak, we would want to point people to Jesus. Make us like John. In a few, in in one of the Gospels, uh, we hear these words, I must decrease, he must increase. Make us like that, that we would not call attention to ourselves, but that people would be attracted to us and the Holy Spirit in us. And we would do what John did. We point him to Jesus. We pray that in your great name. Amen. Amen.